Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Framing Britney Spears, the investigative documentary released as the sixth episode of the series, The New York Times Presents. The episode aired on FX back in February, is currently streaming on Hulu, and can additionally be watched for free by New York Times subscribers. The film explores the conservatorship that Britney Spears has been living under since 2008, specifically within the larger context of her career and celebrity. The film was nominated for two Emmys, Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special, and Outstanding Picture Editing for a Nonfiction Program. My guests today are the editors of the film. First, Jeff O'Brien. Jeff, you've been working as a film editor since 2000, and in addition to editing Framing Britney Spears, you're the supervising editor for The New York Times Presents. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks. Good to be here. Jeff, glad you're here as well. Also joining us is Pierre Tacal. Pierre, you've been a film editor since the late 90s, and you're credited with editing four of the seven episodes that have aired as part of the New York Times Presents. Glad you could join us. Thank you. Good to be here. Gentlemen, before we start, let me warn our listeners, our discussion today will contain spoilers for the film. But let's start by providing some context for the documentary series itself. Talk to me about the New York Times Presents and sort of how this documentary is a part of it. Sure. The New York Times Presents is a evolution of the New York Times series that we used to have called The Weekly, which was, as it suggests, a weekly, uh, they were at the time half hour sort of documentaries airing on Hulu and FX. As we finished up that season, which was like a 30 episode run, it was decided to sort of slow down, make longer pieces that we could do more investigative work. So we had to drop the moniker of the weekly because we were no longer weekly and we became the New York Times Presents. Now, as far as the framing Britney Spears of it all, it was a suggestion by senior editor Liz Day, who uh, in the pitch meetings of coming up with ideas, uh, I believe her log line for it was, I wanted to do something like OJ made in America, but for Britney Spears. And that's sort of where the journey began. Liz Day is a senior editor at the New York Times, so it's coming from the investigative side, not an editor in terms of the work that you guys are doing or as far as pulling it together. Correct. Yeah. Uh, editor in the newspaper sense, not in the film and television sense. Uh, I mean, she's part of the, the New York Times Presents sort of team and trying to figure out what stories to do for television that either the New York Times, the newspaper had done before or just generating new ideas that would be Timesian for television. So in a case like this, Samantha Stark is the producer and the director. Is she a full-time employee of the New York Times assigned the story? So there are staff, we, you know, we had staff producers and staff directors uh, on hand. And in the beginning of the season, when people are trying to figure out what stories we're going to do, you know, the directors on hand go, oh, I would like to do that story. Ooh, that one sounds good for me. And then it's sort of just matching up and seeing what works. And so she's full-time staff to the New York Times Presents. Uh, I believe she did come from the New York Times prior to that. I actually not too familiar with her backstory, but yeah. So she was there in the room and, you know, and, and definitely rose her hand and said, I want to be part of that story. Let's take a step back and talk to me about your careers, gentlemen, leading up to this point. Pierre, you want to start? Uh, sure, sure. I guess my my big break came uh, with, uh, with MTV, uh, MTV Sports, and I was always freelancer, and I always cut things in a documentary fashion. Um, I always wanted to continue the philosophy of what MTV Sports was, which was break all the rules and do things uh, that, you know, you're not used to seeing. And, and I, I think that's never stopped, although it's matured a little bit. And so I've kind of stumbled through, um, and I mean that in a positive sense, where based on the work I've done, opportunities presented itself. 
met Ken and Banks uh, originally at MTV. These are the partners who uh, who started Left Right. That's the production company that does um, New York Times Presents. And I kept in touch with Ken and Banks throughout the years. And so I did a lot of work in reality TV, then did some features, worked many years with uh, the director, Morgan Spurlock, really sharpened my skills and found that I could also score at the same time as cutting. Any opportunity I have to do both simultaneously, that's sort of what I, what I gravitate towards. And Ken basically always had me on speed dial. And so when this project came along, he was basically contacting me and it sounded great. And I could have a lot, a lot of creative input. That's why I'm here. Jeff, how about you, your background and, and leading up to this project? Well, when I first moved to New York, one of the first jobs I could find actually editing was in like industrials, like uh, corporate insurance type videos. Um, and I was just sort of like the in-house person that would cut all the sort of quarterly meetings and all these sort of boring videos. But what I found out quickly doing that was sort of like, that was the job that a lot of directors and producers would sort of do in between their television gigs. And so then I got to meet all of these people that would sort of float in and float out. When I finally, you know, had built up my skills enough to finally just break out of that, I had already had all these contacts. I think my first big break uh, for me was like E! News. I used to cut the old Howard Stern E! Show. And so then I did a lot of E! News and then that went to like VH1 and all those sort of like fashion closets and going into makeovers and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, and then at the time, Left Right uh, was doing a lot of those sort of things and they became one of my regular go-to places. But then as the content that they made sort of evolved, I sort of evolved with it and I would do some of their more different projects that were sort of breaking outside of that, out of that realm. Also, I kind of did my own documentaries on the side and then eventually things aligned and Left Right started making sort of those documentary programming where I was there and ready to go. So for a project like this, at what point do the editors get involved in the specific film? It really depends. And I, I think that's what makes this series uh, really unique is that every story is completely different in how it's obtained. And there's a certain flexibility. It's great in when we are able to be involved before, but I would say it's the attempt to make a documentary that ordinarily may take would have taken maybe a year, two years to follow a person that had let a story evolve. In this case, you're reporting often on developing events, that things that are actually happening in real time. So sometimes the story comes half obtained and that we still need to get further interviews and things to complete the story as we go. Right. I mean, sometimes they start the process and they bring us in and yeah, start cutting to see where the story is going. Or I'm actually thinking about another project that we had done where the reporting, it was, we were following this music artist, Dominic Pike, and the reporter and the producer director, like followed him around for like a year before we actually went into the edit room. So at that one, we almost had everything we needed. Whereas this one was for Britney Spears was slightly different where we were almost shooting and editing concurrently. I would surmise that a story like this has some sort of storyline. You know what you're trying to tell. Do the interviews open up new areas or are you structuring it after seeing the interviews? Um, like any documentary storytelling, especially when the shooting is only halfway done, you don't quite know how the ending is going to go. But for sure, Sam, Sam Stark had written out an outline of sort of like how she viewed the story and what she was trying to convey and what she sort of, you know, assumed and how she thought that people would react to the questions that she was asking. So she kind of had a general idea, but of course, not everyone gave the answer that you're expecting. And so the story goes in different places. And then 
when you start the process, you sort of know, or what you think you know, sort of also as far as the archival goes, what those moments are that you want to build the story upon. But then you find a piece of archival that you didn't know existed, or you see a part of an archival that you thought you knew that you see it differently now. And so it all changes because as you go, you learn more. And also the process of of finding a story and how to tell a story is constantly changing. And, and there are great discussions that take place where opposing points of view actually generate certain answers that you sometimes have to rearrange things. Sometimes you put the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end, you're always reinventing yourself. And I think that's one of the uh, challenges that I enjoy as an editor is, is to have to rethink about the same material. It can be frustrating, you know that you've tried a lot of things that haven't worked and that's good because then when you try the one thing that does work, you do feel confident. And so when we're building a story and suddenly we need to recut a scene because it's now going to be in the end of the film instead of the beginning, it's uh, it's a great exercise. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful sort of mental journey. And then with the interviews, there are different kinds of interviews. There are interviews where, you know, Sam Stark and Liz Day have obtained, you know, people who want to talk about the story. But then there are also the storytellers. They sort of come in at the end where when you want somebody to help you sort of through the story and sort of stitch everything together, that's where the journalists and where maybe Liz Day's role is really helpful because she can help as the story evolves, tie all the pieces together. Peter, thanks for that. I'd like to go from there and get more of a sense of how the collaboration works, not just with you as editors and the director and the producers, but also how you collaborate together, two editors on the same project. The first challenge of this collaboration was that this was a, it was cut at home. Pierre and I were both cutting from our respective homes. And so, you know, normally I mean, I've cut many a projects with another editor, but you're usually just next door or down the hall and it's easy to sort of pop back and forth and speak. Um, so that was our first challenge was just cutting from, from home. And I mean, essentially, Pierre and I split the film on half. I guess that's the first thing we need to sort of just establish. I mean, it's not like a directly in half. I did the front, he did the back. But we definitely had like parts of the story that we were in charge of. But as things shift around and you want to move, because you want to move sort of thematic ideas around, you just had to make sure that we weren't either doubling up or like, oh, our, we already kind of did that story point over here just to make sure we're not saying it twice uh, or three times. So we would watch each other's cuts, you know, just to make sure that things flowed. Or even as like act breaks changed to make sure that the flow made sense. In a very logistical sort of talk, it was a lot of Google Meets and, you know, FaceTimes or whatever, you know, conference calls. I mean, it helps that, that we had worked together on season one and Jeff and I were on since the beginning. Well, Jeff, you were before me, but, but we basically started those first two episodes of one that was the weekly so we, we have a good working relationship, mm -hmm. but because we know the style of the, of the series and we both can take ownership of our own parts, we did sort of separate it in acts and it was kind of random at first, right? We just mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll take acts three and four and maybe you do five. We weren't too organized, um, which was great because it was really um, very or organic how it all kind of happened. Yeah, in retrospect, I think it's actually, I think it's beneficial because it's sort of like we were like leapfrogging over each other. And so I, it's not like I was only, I only did the part of the movie that dealt with Britney's like younger life. I actually got to do some of before, the middle and the after and same with, you know, you. It's like, so it's like, I got a sense of the whole story, even though I was only working on like every other moment, every other act. It's also great because I totally trust Jeff and I, I know the same as 
Jeff trusts me. And so there's never a moment where like, okay, Jeff's going to be working on your part uh, because of this and this, like, don't touch my stuff. It's, it's never that it's very much working in harmony, even though we are very, we're working very much separately. It is harmonious. Yeah, I've never been one to uh, to be like, don't touch my stuff. Because I know when I hit a roadblock or I hit a creative stumbling block and if then Pierre, you know, takes it for a day, if I was out or whatever and I come back and it's like, oh, he nailed it. He saw the thing that I couldn't couldn't see. I, I love that. Turning our attention specifically to framing Britney Spears, I want to talk about some of the challenges you face. And right out the gate, let's talk about the overwhelming amount of material that you have to choose from. I was on the project before, a little bit before Pierre. And what that meant was that I was working time after we'd gotten the uh, outline from Sam Stark, I was working at the time with a post producer named Liz Hodes and the archival producer Sue then brought in a, a bunch of stuff. And basically our job, Liz and my job was to then go through basically the timeline of Britney Spears, sort of when we were starting and when we were going to and sort of marking everything and going through all, you know, and then just sort of familiarizing yourself with all the two, you go, oh, that was only three days after that. Oh, that was only a month later. And so you're starting to put all this stuff together. You end up with a timeline that's like, you know, six hours long strung together because it's just like end to end all of the time she's been covered in the news back to back and trying to figure out then, all right, well, we can't do all of this. What are the points in here that we can sort of jump in on um, that that makes sense for the story? And that was a really hard Thing to do trying out different parts of the story and like pierre said we would sometimes take things from the beginning put it at the end take things from the end put it at the beginning and seeing does this story work in a linear way does it work in a non-linear way we were thinking about films like the last dance the michael jordan thing where they sort of went back and forth in time or do we just go straight and so it was just a long way of trying to figure out what that timeline was going to be and how we were going to tell it i'm so thankful jeff that you were the one to start it because it's a familiar feeling of being overwhelmed, but it just because it's familiar before each project, I know that feeling and I I still don't like it. And I just, I get through it and I know I'm going to get through it. And there's a comfort in knowing that you're going to get through it. But in this case, coming in with a more than a skeleton, I mean, it was the ideas were there. And then it's, it's great. What I enjoy is being able to then sculpt it and, and make it into more of a story and, and find the points that are most important and whittle away those that aren't. But you're right, it was an overwhelming amount of material. It wasn't over, yeah, because all we, we the, the only original footage we had was sort of the footage that they had shot. I mean, the interviews, obviously, but then the, the footage they had shot outside the rallies was sort of the only, that was the only original footage that we had had. So we knew that it was, it was gonna be a lot of archival work telling the story. And so do I extrapolate correctly then that you have a storyline based on the archival footage and the interviews come in to fill it out and make it real and with the actual people involved rather than the interviews are going first and building the story that then you're layering on top of. Yeah, I think that's mostly right. I think because we knew that, well, I mean, at the time we we had requests out to Miss Spears and we had heard anything back. And so we knew we weren't going to have herself telling the story. We knew that we needed to have her in archival telling her own story. So yeah, that's definitely where it started was like, how can we get her in the film as much as possible telling her own story? And then, yeah, and then the interviews, obviously with the people involved in and around those stories. And so they were then there to sort of supplement and fill in the gaps when needed. And then like what Pierre was saying, then we sort of had that other layer of like sort of the, the storytellers and the people who were talking on theme and can sort of give you the cultural context of what else was happening around that time. And here's why this would be frowned upon now. One of the um, interesting challenges between 
season one, The Weekly, and season two, New York Times Presents, was in season one, the, the, the journalist was very present. And we could rely on the almost the narration, the storytelling could be scripted. And the journalist would basically write their, their script and read. And in this case, the direction was very, very clear that they did not want that, that they wanted the material itself to be woven together without narration. And of course, the use of cards is necessary, or slates, we call them, with information on them to help you then understand and position something to come or contextualize something you just saw. But it's really, really challenging when you're, when, and it's wonderful to be able to tell a story without narration. And that's even harder to do in this case. Following up on that, Pierre, when you're talking about the interviews being the narration, give me a sense of how much interview material is coming in. In this case, they were mostly about an hour, right, Jeff? Sometimes an hour plus an hour and a half. And um, we use, uh, we're cutting an Avid and it's called Script Sync. So every interview, we can read it. You basically have the transcript of the interview and you can select the line you want to include and up pops the video at that point in the interview. So it's very helpful. And in this case, the selection of that was done, I'd say both by Sam Stark, by Liz Day, by Liz Hodes, and of course by Jeff and by myself. And also very conscious of following guidelines that we would, uh, basically when you're cutting a reality show, you can do anything. You can use any part. You can make a person say no when they actually said yes. You can. In this case, there's absolutely none of that. You are almost, I guess, bound by certain journalistic rules and ethics that are extremely strict. And so when you cut an interview, you have to follow those rules and make sure that the points that they're telling you, because obviously you can't include the whole interview. You have to be selective, but it has to be absolutely representational of what the person's intention was to say it. It can't be taken out of context. You can't make a person say something that they would have wished they could have said, but didn't. And also as much as possible to avoid this being a talking heads film where interviews of the same people pop up throughout. There are certain ones that do, and that's for good reason, because Wesley Morris is giving you the cultural context and all that. But when a certain person like the photographer, Danny Ramos, he comes in when his role is pertinent to the story, when it's actually his part of the story is being told, that's when you feature him. And so it makes for certain interviews, selecting the material that they say uh, a little easier to identify. Yeah, but like Pierre was saying, a lot of these interviews were like an hour, hour and a half, but they were all like Danny and some of other other folks that appear in the film. I mean, we we always knew that they were going to be used in a specific part in the movie. And so while their interview may be an hour and a half, you know, a lot of that might just be fact-finding for other interviews that they want to conduct or sort of just understanding what it was like from their perspective, just for the director so she could understand where people were coming from. Like we talked to the woman who was her agent in the beginning and, you know, they talked about all kinds of things, but like we knew that she was only going to be used where she has the most expertise, which is in the early years. And so in terms of integrating those interviews with that archival footage, you mentioned earlier that going through and trying to put together the timeline, but again, there's a lot of material there to draw from. Um, some of it sort of defines itself like Britney's early Disney work. But again, not all of these things seem like easy finds. And you're trying to represent a full period of time with just specific clips. Talk to me more about the challenges of the archival work. 
I worked on some of that beginning early year stuff, which had its own challenges. Pierre worked on a lot of the paparazzi stuff, which also had its own challenges. Both cases, there was a significant amount of footage to get through and to try and figure out what to do. As far as the early years go, what we were trying to do there was get across the idea that she was sort of thrust into this world. But we also didn't want to show archival pieces that everyone had seen or even dwell too long in those pieces that you'd already seen. Like everyone kind of knew that she did the Mickey Mouse Club. We needed to mention it so that we could say that when the show got canceled, that the family was in a tough spot and they needed money. And so and she wanted to do other things, but like we didn't need to go through all the episodes, do a, you know, do a whole montage. So it was sort of like that. We wanted to make sure that the information was coming across and that we were showing maybe unexpected pieces of archival, not just the ones you've seen or in the ones that you had seen, like the Star Search one, that we're making sure to include the Ed McMahon comments at the end, not just the parts of her singing. Uh, which I think is something that every Britney Spears documentary sort of starts out with, is her building out that tune, but not necessarily Ed McMahon's response to it. And then Pierre had his own challenges with the hundreds and hundreds of hours of the paparazzi footage. You know, Jeff and I have a, have our background in, in MTV and VH1. Definitely did not want to make it a behind the music and it had the potential of being that because some of that archival material is so seductive. It's so, it's like, it's so amazing. And you're looking at it and you kind of want to sometimes let it play out. And I wrestled with that. And I, I think Jeff, you're, you're sometimes clear in terms of being more discerning. And I think it was a very uh, fortunate that I could work on the more paparazzi end of things. And that, that was more like uh, really putting on a little bit more of a, um, just building a mood and, and juxtaposing different things and, and using sort of the power of certain cuts to butt things together to, to help our story out. I would say the family feud clip, that was a tough one to cut down because obviously you had to cut it down. But then if, after cutting it down, you realize that even what's, what's left is even more powerful. But I think, again, the, the idea of having them be short and not a behind the music was very, very uh, much on our minds. You know, talking about the family feud footage, I was struck by how you have the clip of the game show, but then it's followed by this overlapping audio of the coverage of what was going on with Britney at the time, and then leads into a montage about the conservative program being set up for her. You're talking about not just finding the one thing, but how all of these different archival materials sort of integrate together. I think it happens in, in layers. And the first layer is really getting some kind of story down and getting it just putting the ideas down. But then when you start layering things such as audio and like in the part that Jeff cut, you see the late night hosts making fun and Britney jokes. And it seemed all of a sudden, it seemed like, okay, so when she's walking out of the, uh, after getting her head shaved, they're making jokes about her as well there. You don't want to go back and use the same late night hosts on screen, but you can't not use that material. So that's when it becomes clear that you just have to work it in the audio. You know what they look like. You know, just from the sound with the, of the laugh track behind them. So you can use a lot of ways to go beyond what you're seeing to sort of tap into what a brain of a viewer can project. And so by multi-layering things, by layering audio, by building, it's a montage, but it's not a gratuitous montage to get through time. It's really just to, to show how sort of relentless this was. And that happens over time. That's something that really happens as we keep working on it. You generate more ideas and working on it over time inspires new thoughts. And that's how those sections come together. 
there's an edit that Peter made that I love where it's the guy Britton from Us Weekly who's talking about why they were acquiring such footage. And it's because like people just love to like live in these people's lovely, glorious lifestyle. They want to live through them. And then we cut to like the interior of the gas station bathroom and she's just surrounded by paparazzi. Like this is the glamorous lifestyle that people want to emulate. I don't know about that. No, I was also struck by that. That edit is a really powerful, uh, yet understated sort of drawing the contrast between how the media treated her and, and what her actual life was. I want to ask some questions about other specific edits, but first, while we're still talking about material, talk to me about social media. Uh, I'll jump in first sort of with the TikTok stuff because I cut that stuff. But the TikTok stuff, I mean, Sam actually, to her credit, went out and found those clips. And so she knew exactly what she wanted with that stuff. And so luckily we didn't go too far down a a sort of TikTok rabbit hole. Um, She sort of found, you know, whatever it was, the eight or 10 pieces that sort of would convey the mood and story and the setting up of sort of the fan POV on that. Now, the Instagram is a whole different story. We had a lot there cut that version several times that was uh, that was one of those things where i had cut a couple of versions and then i was like pierre you have to take this like i'm out of ideas here and then so then pierre took it and then elevated it and took it again the the instagram i remember that it seemed fine to me it seemed like well this this is great it was thank also you, that thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no it's true it's like I, what it, and i think it was that sam had a real a very strong feeling that this was extremely important. And there was a um, sort of, do we have enough time to feature this? Is this, can we just show one and just get through it? And I think Sam really wanted to make it a scene. And that's where using a different kind of mood and using maybe a little scoring, I think, I don't know what, what it was, but just to be able to work with Sam on that and to make it so that she felt okay with it and that she felt actually really happy with it. Also, the two women who did uh, Brittany Graham, the podcast, they helped also very much uh, contextualize it and root it in something that was actually not just we're, sh- we're showing B-roll of Instagrams over interview audio. It had to do with what they were seeing and what they were observing. And they were, they were scrutinizing the social media. They, they were noticing details. And I think that's what made the Instagram stuff really um, more than just coverage. Yeah. It had to do with what was possibly going on in uh, Britney Spears' mind. And- Ultimately, what, what came out of that Instagram section, we made sure that it had a lot more sort of heart in the uh, section, that it came from a heartfelt place. And it wasn't just, yeah. It wasn't just a montage of random things she has posted. I've focused on the material and the challenges involved in just sorting through it. But are there other challenges inherent to documentary editing that maybe are not as self-evident as that? This case, a conservatorship, I didn't know what it meant. It was explained to me and I kind of understood it, but the time it took to explain it to me and the kind of uh, mind wandering that my mind naturally does, I just, it took me a while to really understand. So how to explain something with a lot of legal terms and make it um, interesting, that may have been one of the challenges in this case. The solution is to tell it through story to be able to deliver fact through story, you're not telling people stuff, you're, you're actually accompanying them and helping them learn. That's, I think, a big challenge, how to make stuff interesting. Yeah, how to make it interesting about a person who has been talked about for a long time in every aspect of her life. And how do you tell that story and show things that maybe people aren't as familiar with and tell it in a different way that they're not gonna be like, oh, I've seen this before. And I remember um, when we started, Sam was like, we're not gonna, 
we're not going to cut her together and, and she's never going to be the butt of a joke. Uh, we're never going to make an edit that makes fun of her. We're never going to make, she's never going to be the punchline or do something gratuitous for the sake of showing it. We want to make sure that um, it comes from that point of view. And in that, hopefully we'll be giving people a story that they haven't seen before in regards to her. Well, I think in terms of telling the story, the opening montage is really important. I'm not familiar with New York Times Presents as a series. Is this a house style to open like this? Or did you do this specifically for Framing Britney Spears? I mean, it's a house style. So you have sort of a pre-title segment. There's no rule on what that is. Um, it could be a scene. It could be a, a tease in the greater sense of the word. For this one, we wanted to root it in sort of like the why now of it all and that making sure people understood what a conservatorship was, the position that she was in, so that when we do go back in time to the mid-90s and go back up through, that we sort of give context to everything. So we can say like, here's the position she's in, and then here was her life moving forward. You can sort of see it through that lens. No. And then I just knew that because she wasn't going to be in the film directly, that I wanted to make sure, at least make sure her voice was in there up front and that I think she has a recognizable voice. Obviously people know what they're watching and they see it. So I didn't necessarily need to show her that would just help get people in. Now, when you talk about her voice, I did notice that there's an echo there. Is that something that you added for emphasis with her presentation or is that from the source material? Uh, no, that uh, I did add that uh, echo effect in. It's the, it was the last bite sort of that I was using leading into the title of the film. And I just wanted to make sure that whatever it landed into the title we're you know dealing with archival you're always dealing with imperfect sources and so you have to clean it up as much as you can without overdoing anything unethical i suppose well i, I thought the opening montage worked really well not just as an intro for the video but also sort of as a as a bookend since it allows us to start with the conservatorship and then go back in time and then come back around to at the end of the film dealing with the with the nitty-gritty of it Congrats on that. I, again, I really thought it, it hooked me from the beginning. Let's talk some more about some other scenes that hopped out to me. And, and I'll ask about some. And then if there's others that you guys want to bring up, please just uh, throw them in. The top of my list is when Sam uh, Lutvi is introduced. I'm actually not quite sure how to describe him. Some sort of manager, partner that comes in a troubled point of her life. But when he comes in, the video freezes and there's a spotlight on them. And then interview audio starts in underneath that. And I'm curious about the challenge of introducing him specifically. He, he was a challenge. That was one of uh, one of my scenes. Uh, and a late ad, too. He was a late he ad, yeah. It was based on a note that was like, you know, we we don't ever have Sam Lutfi clearly visible. Um, and there's there's not that that shot of him where you, he's clearly identifiable. So it was a technique that was a lot more subtle in the rough cut stage um, that was not necessarily designed as a spotlight, but it, the freeze and uh, the sort of slightly darkening of the frame uh, was supposed to draw your eye to him. As long as you start the audio underneath where your eye is focusing, you then make the connection. Uh, and it was really as simple as that. It, it was not meant to be art. It was it was really for clarity. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it worked. Uh, another moment that really worked for me in the film is when uh, there's the Michael Moore clip from Larry King. And I can just imagine finding that and then high-fiving yourselves that, like this is going to be perfect. Or you guys give me a little bit of context around, around that edit. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when that, cause that clip was always there from the very beginning. I, but, and I don't know who found it, but it, that was one that definitely like sort of moved around a little bit and varying lengths too of, of how long to keep it. But 
it was definitely one that was always always in play and yeah exactly there was a it was a bit of a high five moment like this is pretty incredible and, and like you said jeff it was floating around it had to find its place because it was too good and it wherever we put it it just didn't fit didn't fit didn't fit and it's amazing how at the end of such a project so many decisions so many so many thoughts and reactions ultimately lead you to the solution and it found its own place i got to say just by really by trying it in so many different places it found its it found the right place where it just seemed like this is the only place it can go there's a couple of places where you have interviews with folks who are also key parts of the story. You mentioned uh, Danny Ramos, the photographer earlier, the paparazzi, and how he features prominently in both the history and then is able to tell the interview in the current time. And also uh, lawyer Adam Streisand. You've got footage of him from the courthouse in the day, and also he's given a current interview. Talk to me about merging the past with the present in those ways. Well, those two were actually also my scenes. With Adam Streisand, it just seemed like that that's the material we, we have to work with. And it it is relevant to what he's saying. And it just naturally seems to fit in terms of, uh, you know, that, that was him leaving court. That was that day. And so it didn't seem like really uh, there could be any other way to use that footage. With Danny, such a sincere and, and, and honest guy, he, he had footage. So his footage was um, just relevant to his story and, the, and his storyline and how he basically described the moment, what led up to her shaving her head. He, he had the footage of that. And that's what just basically was actually one of the less challenging scenes because you knew where to put it based on how he told his story, which he told really well, I thought it made you realize how at the time, I don't think anybody really thought about what they were doing. And that's pretty clear in terms of how he tells his story. He didn't mean any harm clearly and uh, looks at it now differently. There's another interesting interview that uh, struck me as a challenge in the editing and that's for Vivian Thorin, who was part of the team representing Britney's father was not apparently in the time she interviewed with you, but then there's a placard that explains that she goes back to the team before the documentary is is completed. I'd, I'd like to hear more about your challenges in, in dealing with her interview. It really was about trying to make her as clear as possible. She was very clear in her interview uh, that she wanted to talk about what conservatorships are, not the specific one in this case. Uh, hypotheticals. She spoke a lot in hypotheticals. It, that's exactly. And so she's really there to explain what it is. But she comes in at the point in the story where you kind of want to know what a conservatorship is. We, we only dealt with the words that she said and that we had. Like It was literally, I believe, the next day after we shot her that she then rejoined the other team. But, you know, we still had her interview, but we, you know, we're also very careful. I mean, yeah, our, our biggest job with Vivian was just making sure that he was understandable and that it wasn't too much into the legalese. Jeff, continue from there, though. If I've pitched a couple at Pierre just randomly in, in the scenes I selected, what edits strike you as uh, particularly memorable in, in watching again or were specific challenges when you were putting it together? Working around like the Justin Timberlake era of it all was like another spot where that seemed to be a very heavily covered part of her life and that everyone seemed to know. And so trying to figure out ways to tell the story in a way that was 
uh, succinct uh, and that we got to the story between the story, not just the fact that they dated and that they broke up. And that's when she was getting questioned about her virginity and all that kind of stuff. And just making sure that we could carefully craft the story succinctly and sort of tell you the context around that relationship and what else was happening, the Monica Lewinsky and people talking about sex for the first time and how the media covered her and really leaning into that and not so much about the music videos that Justin Timberlake put out that did whatever. And so like, because that story has been told a hundred times. And so we are trying to just give enough to give context, but not really focus on it too much. I think Jeff, what, what you did so well was make that shift starts off by what could potentially be a behind the music. And then there's that sudden shift to basically it's about being a woman and how you're being treated because you're a woman. It's so strong when you make that shift. And then the, the film takes a whole other direction. Yeah. In the beginning that um, like the star search clip and like, and showing the Ed McMahon and then commenting on it, like we wanted to make sure right at the very beginning that this isn't just going to be sort of a retrospective. We're going to, we're, we're going to look at this stuff with a certain point of view and force you to look at these things slightly differently. And I, we want to make sure we got that in within those first couple of minutes, which wasn't easy. Like that was a, a moment that we debated about and changed and rechanged a bunch of times until we thought that we got it right. I want to ask about a couple of things I noticed that are less critical perhaps to the story overall, but I'm curious about how it comes together for you as editors. A lot of the interviews done with this Rose Garden backdrop. And sometimes in the course of it, you actually have B-roll of the roses themselves, which I think helps with the transitions and such and actually works really well to sort of tie all these interviews together. But I'm curious about the idea of even capturing B-roll of the roses from the interview setup. Is that something you asked for or is that something that Sam just did and then brought to you guys? Yeah, it was her idea. Well, it was her idea to, to shoot in front of the rose sort of backdrop to begin with. And yeah, I, I don't know if it was if it was Sam or if it was the DP, Emily, who shot it. I don't even really know what their intention was, to be honest with you. But in creating that open, I and I knew that I wanted to use only Britney's voice for those openings. And I was deciding, I was trying to figure out what I could use. And then I came across these roses. And then I was like, well, this sort of makes sense. The, I mean, the reason they showed the rose is because yeah, I guess it's her favorite flower. And then I was like, oh, well, now I can just sort of personify this rose and use it anytime that Brittany was speaking in that cold, in that cold open. So that's where that came from. And then I, I reprised it as sort of in the end of the film, sort of under the sort of postscript stuff uh, and used it there just to sort of show like, you know, the world beyond the documentary still goes on and here's what, here's what it was. But I don't know why they shot it. I'm glad they did. <laughs> uh, I had never asked for it, but it was there. And so also in a world... Uh, where I knew we didn't have that much original footage in the documentary. I wanted to make sure we used as much of it as possible. You know, Jeff, I hadn't thought about it till right now when you explained it, but I, I feel in retrospect that affiliating her voice with the roses up front gives her a presence through all of the interviews that even though it, it's subtle and again, in a way that I didn't notice at the time, but the decision to put most of the interviews in front of this same backdrop creates a continuity there and a, and a presence for Brittany that I think really serves the the video overall. That was sort of the intent. And also on a more practical sense, like I said, it was shot during COVID times and they needed a way to make things look cohesive. But uh, we certainly use that to our advantage. Now, what about other meta moments? There's a couple of times, I think, where there's a noise of a frame advance or, or a clacker. And then um, at least at one point with the Danny Ramos interview, you show them doing the slate before the interview starts. The decision to include those artifacts of the film collection, talk to me more about that. You, you kind of have to have a little fun as well. And I think he's a photographer. We're filmmakers. We're drawing attention to the medium we're working in by including that. 
we're also subtly indicating that we're not we're not holding anything back we're not hiding anything mm -hmm. um, there's an honesty to maybe revealing that it's not just gratuitous and in the context of Danny it's really because uh, he's a photographer and a filmmaker and um, you know why not I was gonna say too we did the only I think the only other time we did it was in the very beginning with Felicia and I mean, there are, I guess two reasons. One, I wanted to show it there. It was, the, it was the first interview of the documentary. I wanted to just, yeah, sort of like pull the curtain back a little bit. But also her reaction to it is she's so giggly and bubbly. It was also a way to show that like, this is not a Hollywood person. She gets excited because we're making a movie, that she's a real person and that her opinions are going to come off and they're going to come off genuinely because this is not something she's used to. And so I wanted to sort of show that. Jeff, you did it first and then I saw you did it. <laughs> And I thought, you know, I'm going to do it too. No, no, no. The, the Danny one was first. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I should do that. One other scene I wanted to ask about, and I feel like it's outside of uh, your control as editors, but in the Matt Lauer interview, he's not wearing any socks. And I'm just, I know you're trying to be journalists in this, but can't you fix that in post? Or is there no video effects budget that's sort of just correct that for our eyes? Because that's hard to unsee. I, I thought, didn't we spend a lot of money trying to remove his socks for that day? <laughs> we did. We did. I don't, yeah, of all the things in that interview, I don't think Matt Lauer's socks were the, uh, the problems. With it, but. <laughs> I, I actually, to be honest, I never really noticed it. But it's funny that people pick up on that because I, I was more, I was just sort of focusing on, on you know, Brittany's face and what a difficult time she was having. And it serves its moment as well, again. And it's not a distraction from the course of the film, but uh, I'm sure he regrets. <laughs> and he might regret other things too. I, 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 <laughs> I was going to say, the list of Matt Lauer regrets. Uh, well, Stepping back from the film itself and then going to this larger context, we mentioned that the film came out in February. I first heard it mentioned more recently because of the court battles that have been going on. And in, uh, in fact, I heard about your documentary first on Pop Culture Happy Hour, where they were talking about the general context and then brought up the documentary again. What's it like for you guys to have been involved in something that continues to sort of gain attention as a cultural moment? It's validating for sure. Uh, I mean, I've cut and made so many things that nobody has ever seen that what is nice is that the conversations that people are having, so many people are having, are the same conversations that we were having in the edit suite, just the three of us or four of us. And that the themes that we were trying to get across and that the subtleties that we were thought, you know, that were being portrayed are people are reading those signs and they're getting it and they're understanding. And that was so validating to know that it wasn't just us and that people are getting it. It was a very personal experience for me too, in that I had worked with some of that footage before in 2007 and 2008, some of that paparazzi footage and in a whole other context because I was editing at VH1 and MTV. And it was such an interesting exercise to so many years later, see that same footage and realize how it had been used and how being part of the machine, we never really thought about it. It seemed like that's what these shows do. And that's, and so it was a, a, an interesting moment in terms of self-examination and, and just to see that same footage recut and reframed uh, in the context of this story. And I'm so glad actually to have had that experience to have been able to do it and to see it. I never expected it was going to have the success or the recognition that it did. 
it really took me by surprise because so many of the uh, shows and films we cut kind of go by and they're noticed, but not like this. So that came as a surprise to me. Well, and culminated in an Emmy nomination for both of you on this uh, this episode, which again, congratulations. That context aside, though, I feel like the issues that we talked about from an editing perspective and how it comes together and tells the story. As someone who was not particularly interested in Britney Spears, I was hooked very early in watching the film. And so it's a direct credit to what the entire team has put together here. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I do remember, yeah, before having leading up into this project during the first, you know, week or two or getting into it, I, you know, was talking with my wife about it and, you know, some of her friends. And at the time they were like, why, why are you guys doing this? Like, why is the New York Times doing a story about Britney Spears? But it's so far from that now because people understand. So when a documentary series like New York Times Presents has a breakout episode of this nature. Does it affect the series overall? Does it bring attention to other episodes? Or I'm kind of sort of curious how that plays out in the context of the entire series. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, we had a couple of, I mean, the Britney Spears one obviously is the, the biggest breakout one. The Breonna Taylor one was also very well received and well watched. Uh, yeah, I imagine it plays a, a large role in whether or not FX and Hulu decide to continue with the series. But it is, yeah, it does get more eyeballs on it, for sure. And other episodes, I've had people reach out who didn't even know that the show existed until the Britney Spears one. And then to say, like, yeah, actually, there's a whole back catalog of the 30 episodes from season one. Go watch those, too. Um, And when you say season one, that's the weekly was considered season one, as we talked about in the beginning. New York Times presents you guys consider season two because it's a continuation of the same folks involved in that. But that is a total of seven episodes or there are going to be more than seven episodes for the first season of New York Times presents. Uh, I believe there will be 10 in, in this first season of the New York Times presents. And then I'm not sure for the next season how many there will be. But there will be another season that New York Times Presents will continue. Correct. Yeah, it was, that was just announced last week, I believe. But I don't think they've, they've, they haven't said how many are in the order. It's funny because I don't feel like it's changed. Like people are very, you know, like, woohoo, we got, you know, nominated and it's great. And it, it hasn't really changed the team that much in terms of work. Rhythm is the same. We haven't stopped. Um, yeah, they're like, that's Our great. Artists. When's the next cut? Like, okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what that's have you exactly done for me it. lately? It's, yeah, exactly. it's relentless. Yeah. You know, there's one thing that I just thought of when you were talking about how has this affected maybe us, how the story has taken off and the Britney story has taken off. I got a, a Facebook message sent to me. It was my fifth grade teacher <laughs> congratulating me. And this particular fifth grade teacher, she basically had told me that I was pretty much doomed to, to to fail in life. And so I thought that was actually really wonderful that she- That she told you that as a fifth grader? As a fifth grader, she told my parents. <laughs> she told my parents, um, but I did feel it in how she treated me in class compared to the others. I, she's like, he's always um, in French, it's you, your head is in the moon. You know, he's always in the moon. He's always daydreaming. He's always thinking, you know, he has trouble getting his work done and, and he seems to not be able to pay attention. But thank God for not being able to pay attention for what we do. If there's any cure for ADD, I would say it's it's editing because you constantly have something, the next thing to think about. Anyway, but that that was a very personal moment that I was like, aha. So at least one of my teachers. <laughs> Your uh, fifth grade teacher also reached out to me just to thank you. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Thank Damn. you for getting Pierre back on track. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it, it took a long time. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I suspect that the Britney story is not entirely done. And so the documentary will continue to get some attention uh, going forward. In the meantime as well, uh, good luck with the Emmys. And uh, congrats to both of you. Thanks for being here today. This is a lot of fun. Thanks. It was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelinebiz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Take care, and join us again next week for a new episode of Below the Line.